Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 34. Most commentaries will give this chapter a heading such as the renewal of the covenant. It concludes the interlude that is chapters 32, 33, and 34. In chapter 35, we'll encounter the narrative of the actual construction of the tabernacle, which, as you will recall, was in some doubt after the incident with the golden calf. But Moses made intercession, and God was surprisingly responsive. Moses was overwhelmed and asked for further assurances that God's presence would truly be with them as it had been throughout their journey of redemption. Moses is asking for complete renewal and restoration, and that is precisely what we are seeing in this remarkable chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. Douglas Stewart has an amusing comment here. He says, Like an employer saying to a previously dismissed employee, Welcome back to the company. Let me show you to your workstation. Or a judge saying to a person whose punishment has been completed, You're free to go and resume your former life. God said to Moses and through him to Israel, in effect, Bring some new tablets. Let's put the covenant back in force. Closed quote. That is exactly what this passage is about. It's about a new start. It's about a clean slate. It is about disaster averted through covenant mediation and undeserved grace. Thanks be to God. Verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So this is the theophany that was promised at the end of chapter 33. In our mind's eye, we can see Moses standing in the cleft of the rock, holding tightly to his chest the two new tablets that he has carved, with his nose pressed against the side of the mountain, sensing the presence of the Lord passing by, and hearing Yahweh proclaiming the name of the Lord. Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The Jews refer to this as the Shilosh Esra Midot, 
or the 13 attributes of God. And they recite these attributes at various points in their liturgy. And this, of course, reminds us that in the world of the Bible, names are more than just names. A name is the essence of a person's nature and character. R. Alan Cole says helpfully here, The name of Yahweh expresses all that he is and does. So this means proclamation of the saving acts of God, closed quote. So what is being proclaimed here is not the sum total of what there is to know about God. That would obviously take more than a handful of verses. This is the essence of who God is with respect to his covenant people. God's character is revealed through his words and saving acts. We don't know everything there is to know about God. God is infinite and entirely other. So all we can know of God is what he reveals through his word and saving acts. And principally, what we learn about God through his saving interaction with his covenant people is that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Those characteristics are on full and glorious display in this story. God should have wiped out Israel and relaunched the covenant project through the house and line of Moses, but he didn't because he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It may be useful to define each of those things. To be merciful is to relent from deserved punishment. It is to give people less than they deserve. Trust me, friends, you don't want God to give you what you deserve. What you want is mercy. Psalm 103 verse 10 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's mercy. Thanks be to God. To say that God is gracious means that he gives us more than we expect to receive. He is generous beyond our anticipation. That he is slow to anger means that he is patient with his covenant people. He knows that we are dust. He is aware of our weaknesses and shortcomings and has accounted for them in his plans and purposes. That he is abounding in steadfast love means that he has a loving commitment to his covenant people. The Hebrew word used here really has no English equivalent, and so that's why it's translated in a variety of ways in most of your English Bibles. It's the Hebrew word kesed, and it refers to the sort of obligations and commitments associated with a legal relationship. It means to take responsibility for. It means to provide for. And of course, this is why we call God Father, because he acts toward us as a father. He shows the sort of steadfast love and familial beneficence we associated with that particular relationship. To say that God is faithful is to say that he is reliable, trustworthy, and steady. While the people may be up and down, while our affections may wax and wane, the Lord in his nature and commitment changes not. Thanks be to God. That he keeps this steadfast love for thousands while visiting iniquity to the third and fourth generation probably means to imply that while there are consequences for disobedience, they are not as far-reaching as the rewards for obedience and loyalty. God's rewards and blessings are disproportionate to his chastisements and corrections. Praise the Lord. And yet, of course, God is not mocked. 
He is a holy God. He does not clear the guilty. Nahum Sarna explains that clause by saying, Divine forbearance does not mean that sinners can expect holy to escape the consequences of their misdeeds. Closed quote. To say that God is merciful is not to say that there is no moral calculus in the universe. Of course there is. Of course there has to be. It is difficult to know exactly how the justice and mercy of God go together. And indeed, we won't fully understand that as Bible readers until we are confronted with the awful reality of the body of Jesus Christ upon the cross. The Lord is holy and merciful. Thanks be to God. Verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses seizes upon this revelation of God's character to make a final appeal for his mercy to be extended to his people. Lord, you are merciful, therefore be merciful to us, though we are a stiff-necked people. And verse 10 indicates God's favorable response to this petition. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do for you. So here we see the actual renewal of the covenant. God promises to be with them as before. In fact, he says that his presence with them in the future will be even more remarkable than his presence with them in the past. His future works of redemption will be spoken of throughout the world. We assume that this refers to the work of the conquest narrated in the book of Joshua. So God will be with them in the way envisioned and detailed in the original covenant. And thus, we have now a summary recapitulation. And to be clear, it is a summary. It does not repeat the original covenant word for word. This is a recap. Obviously, at some point in the story, perhaps even underneath the opening words of verse 10, God re-inscribes the Ten Commandments and then reiterates with particular emphasis all the material that was previously covered in chapters 21 to 23. The idea is simply that the covenant that was broken, you will recall Moses shattering the Ten Commandments, which symbolized the heart and center of the covenant when he came down the mountain the first time, that broken covenant is here renewed. The Ten Commandments and all the applications and expansions are reinstated. These are then summarized in the form of commandments and obligations in the following verses, beginning with verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So, by way of comparison, the original covenant was in reference to God's deliverance of the people from Egypt. So, Exodus 20, verse 2, this is the preamble, says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So, the preamble to the Ten Commandments rehearses an act of redemption in order to introduce various covenant obligations. Same pattern here. 
Now it is a set of future acts of redemption. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, etc. And then as before, there is an obligation to exclusive loyalty and allegiance to Yahweh, their covenant king. We see that in verse 12. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Now, as I said, this is a summary. There's no need to rehearse all that was said in chapters 20 and 21 to 23. This is just the renewal ceremony. And so it only refers to certain representative features of the covenant. And in particular, it seems to emphasize those that had been egregiously violated in the incident of the golden calf. Most of these Representative conditions refer to worship and idolatry. So we continue on with that theme in verse 18. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month Abib. For in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He ate neither bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. In verse 27, God tells Moses to write these words. That would seem to refer to the summary obligations and commandments. In verse 1, God had said that he would inscribe the words that were originally on the tablets. So perhaps it is best to understand God as writing the Ten Commandments again on the tablets, and then Moses writing down all the obligations and extrapolations that followed. Thus, the covenant is renewed. Verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. 
But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Of course, this passage is very familiar to us because the Apostle Paul makes reference to it in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 3, 12 to 18, he says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, closed quote. So there, Paul is using the idea of the veil to communicate a sort of distance between people and the intimate experience of God's glory and self-revelation. The people did not have an intimate knowledge of God. Moses did, but it was hidden from the people of Israel as by a veil. Thus, Paul compares the experience of conversion to the lifting of the veil. When we come to Christ... The veil is removed, and we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are transformed, just like Moses was transformed, by one degree of glory to the next. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, in a sense, to be in Christ is to be in the tent of meeting, or on Mount Sinai with Moses, beholding the glory of the Lord. And that changes a person. There's a theological truth here, obviously, but there is also, I think, a pattern for Christian piety. J. Alec Machir says here, The Lord's transformation of Moses did not happen independently of Moses' perseverance in fellowship with God. He looked to him with fasting and self-denial for 40 days, and as a result of this, he became radiant. Closed quote. I think that's true glorious, and helpful. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me 
than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.